Remain standing for the Word of God. I'm going to read from two scripture passages this morning. Uh, First from Galatians chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. For in Christ Jesus there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. And then also from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, and who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Father, we do ask for your blessing to be upon the reading and the preaching of your word this day, that we may grow in our knowledge of you and what it means to be your people and how you would call us to live and serve and love in this world, how we can be the kind of community that you call us to be in your word, how we can carry out the mission, the task that you have given to us in the world. Father, we pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. I realize I have just started preaching a series on the book of Samuel, and we're going to get back to that very soon, God willing, but I'm going to interrupt that series this morning to address a current event in light of the gospel, because I've heard so much conversation about this, and I think there's so much confusion about it, I think it's worth talking about. I don't think that preaching should get too bogged down in addressing the headline news stories very often. If you've been around here for a while, you know that. That's not typically how we preach. Preachers are not concerned with the news. We preach the good news. The good news, that is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't want to cheapen the pulpit by turning it into an exposition of current events. Preaching should be an exposition of scripture as the eternal word of God. But sometimes you have a current event that so clearly and directly intersects with theological concerns, with with biblical concerns, that it's worth using a sermon to bring them together. Obviously, we want to look at everything in light of God's word. We want to interpret current events in light of scripture. We want to look at our lives and the world around us through the lens of scripture. We want to look at unfolding history through the lens of scripture. And in this case, I think there's a lot of confusion, and so there is a need for biblical clarity. And so I want to speak this morning about some of the issues surrounding Israel and Hamas, issues raised by the Israel-Hamas conflict in the Middle East. I know it's very easy to get tired of, of talking about the Middle East, but I think we need biblical clarity about this because much of the church today is very obviously confused by this conflict, how we should interpret it, and and therefore we don't know how to talk about it, we don't know how to pray about it, and that can actually harm our witness, that can actually hinder the church's mission. So God willing, we'll get it right this morning, we will uh, get it straight this morning by sorting out the theological issues. So first, just as a preliminary, uh, I want to set out a few facts. Uh, I don't think most of these are under dispute. On October 7th, Hamas invaded 
Israel. Hamas is widely regarded as an, as an Islamic terrorist group. Of course, it goes without saying that not all Muslims are terrorists and not even all Palestinians are Muslim, but Hamas is most certainly both Muslim and terrorist. They are heavily financed by the Islamic Republic uh, of Iran, and their publicly stated goal is the destruction of Israel. That, they would say that's why they exist, basically is to destroy Israel. When they launched their most recent attack on Israel, uh, it seems rather clear that they deliberately targeted civilians, especially the weakest among uh, the Israelis. They raped and murdered and kidnapped. Uh, they do not have a just war tradition, as Christians do, that would rein them in or that would uh, teach them to distinguish combatants from civilians. Uh, they're not above using children as human shields. Uh, we should be very clear, Hamas is incredibly evil. There is no question about that. What about Israel? Israel, the modern-day nation-state of Israel, was formed in 1948 uh, in the aftermath of Hitler's Holocaust to provide a, a homeland, a kind of sanctuary, if you will, for uh, the Jews, for those who consider themselves ethnically Jew or uh, religiously are committed to Judaism in some of its modern form. While Israel is far from being a righteous nation, so there's no moral equivalence here, while Israel is far from being a righteous nation, there is no moral equivalence here between the two sides. Uh, in fact, Israel, it seems, has been rather willing to live at peace with Muslims in the region, whereas the radicalized Muslims like Hamas want Israel eradicated from the face of the earth. So again, no moral equivalence there at all. There's no question that Israel as a nation state, as a sovereign nation, has the right to defend itself against attack. And so Israel has justly declared war in response to the invasion by Hamas. Now, Hopefully, Israel will not de descend into using the same kind of tactics that Hamas has used. Warfare can be very messy, but hopefully they will not descend into using those kinds of attacks. But given all of that, given those facts, it would seem that support for Israel in this conflict is justified. And yet, we should also be clear about some other things regarding Israel. Israel is a very westernized, you could say, very secularized, very progressive state. Uh, it does not adhere to biblical law. You might think, oh, as Jews, certainly they would, they would have respect for biblical law. They really don't. There are not very many biblical principles that inform their national life uh, as a nation, as a culture, as a society. They're very pro-LGBTQ. They're very pro-abortion in many ways. Uh, what you see in modern day, the modern day nation state of Israel is a secular progressive agenda, much like that of our own nation or other Western nations. Further, there are other complications here. There are many Palestinians who do not support Hamas. In fact, there are quite a few Palestinian Christians, quite a few Arab Christians in the region. They, of course, risk getting caught in the crossfire. In fact, it's interesting, there are more Christians in the region who are Arab than Jewish, if the statistics are to be believed. That, that, that further complexifies the situation. Some things about this situation are, of course, very clear, but some things do make it complex. There are a lot of other questions that have arisen. I've seen these questions asked. I don't know that I've seen really good answers to these questions. How did Israel's intelligence fail to know that an attack was coming? Why did their response seem to be so slow? 
where did Hamas get the money for all of those missiles? Where did they get the money to fund this kind of attack since they don't really produce anything? Where did the funding come from? How complicit is our nation, the United States of America, in what's happening since, again, there's no question, we have passed along billions of dollars to Iran, much of which almost certainly has ended up in the hands of Hamas. Uh, for several decades now, we have had, at the very least, you could say very questionable foreign policy decisions being made in that part of the world. So how complicit are we in this conflict? Further, given how much propaganda there is in the various news outlets, how do we know who to trust to tell us the truth about what's happening over there? How do we even know really what's going on? A lot of stories have come out. Are they true? Are they not? Hard to say. So some things about this conflict are clear, but other things about it make it rather complicated. One thing I want us to be able to do is to be able to pray wisely and biblically and intelligently about a situation like this. I know not everybody needs to follow the news. In fact, I'd say probably most of us don't need to follow as much news as we do, but we still need to have some knowledge. We need to be somewhat informed about what's going on in the world around us. If nothing else, so we know how to pray. So if we look at this conflict in the Middle East going on right now, what are some ways to pray? Well, first, godly people in Scripture pray that violent and extremely evil people would be judged by God, indeed would be destroyed by God. There is no question that Hamas initiated this conflict. Hamas is utterly evil. It is perfectly appropriate to pray for judgment on Hamas, to pray for the rod of iron, the rod of Christ's wrath, to smash Hamas to pieces. We should pray for God's justice, for God's judgment. The Psalter is filled with prayers of this sort, prayers for occasions just like this. Use those psalms. Sing those psalms. That's why we've been given them for occasions like this. Further, pray that Jesus would convert his enemies, that his gospel would change hearts and minds. That is indeed the only hope for this kind of conflict, is that Jesus would change hearts and minds through his gospel. Pray that Christians in that region would be faithful and would be kept safe. Pray for those who suffer the ravages of war, those who suffer the loss of property, and especially those who suffer the loss of loved ones. Pray that Israel could defend its nation and wage war in a just way with minimum civilian casualties. Pray that truth would prevail over propaganda. Pray that a well-ordered government might be established in Gaza. Pray that the peace of the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus, would prevail in that part of the world, indeed in every part of the world. You know, it's kind of cliche to pray for peace in the Middle East, but we need to remember only the Prince of Peace can bring peace. But here's the thing, if we're going to properly interpret and pray for this situation, there's something else we need to understand. And this is really my main focus. This is really the heart of my sermon this morning. And this is really important because I've seen so many people get this wrong the past couple weeks. There are two positions or two views, you could say, of modern Israel and modern Judaism that we must avoid. One position we must avoid is what might be called anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism can arise from the political left or from the political right. It actually is much more common to come from the left, and that's why you see on very progressive university campuses support for Hamas, which, again, I think shows you the moral bankruptcy of progressives in our culture. 
but it can come from the right as well. It, it, it sometimes uh, manifests itself on the right. We are seeing in our day an outbreak of anti-Semitism. In America right now, we are seeing an outbreak of anti-Semitism. Now, anti-Semitism can have many causes. What is it? Anti-Semitism in the most simple form is simply hatred of the Jewish people. The Jewish people are descendants of Shem, and so they're known as the Semites, and so anti-Semitism is hatred of the Jewish people, often leading to their persecution. Sometimes it's driven by envy, because the Jews usually end up being quite good at whatever they choose to do. They are uh, a talented people. Uh, Doug Wilson, I think, rightly calls them a high-performance people. So it could be driven by envy, because Jews are often quite successful. Sometimes it's driven by a desire to find a scapegoat, uh, to find a scapegoat, some group of people that you can blame for all of society's ills. If we can pin society's ills on this people and then eliminate them, that will solve our problems. And because Jews tend to stand out, sometimes they're scapegoated in this way. Sometimes anti-Semitism is driven by a misguided reading of the Bible. In the case of Hamas, their hatred for Jews is rooted in their reading of the Quran. For them, it's not just a dispute over land. It is deeply theological. It is deeply religious. They practice hatred of Jews in the name of their false god. That's really clear. Christians, of course, should have nothing to do with anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism, like any other form of ethnic prejudice, is a sin. Christians should have nothing to do with it. Even if we were to view Jews as our enemies, what does Jesus tell us to do? Love our enemies. We should have nothing to do with anti-Semitism. Sadly, sometimes the church has fallen into anti-Semitism. Sometimes in church history, Christians have been guilty of mistreating Jews, of treating them, treating them as if they were still under some kind of special covenantal curse. Uh, in the Middle Ages, sometimes Christians would mistreat Jews and would call them Christ killers, which is kind of ridiculous. That's kind of crazy because Gentiles, the Romans, were just as complicit in Christ's death as the Jews. So that makes no sense to call them Christ killers. Really, all of us are Christ killers in the sense that our sin put Jesus on the cross. But still, that's a slur that Christians have used against Jews at times, very sadly. We should have nothing to do with that, and I think the reasons for that will become clear as we go this morning. But there is another error on the other side that we must avoid as well, and it's one that's been very common in the American church, especially uh, among conservative evangelicals. It is the view that Jews as such continue to be God's chosen people, and so therefore we Christians should give unconditional support to the nation-state of Israel. We are theologically and biblically obligated to support Israel no matter what, because Israel, the nation-state of Israel, is God's people. They are children of Abraham, and we should treat them accordingly. This view flows out of a theological movement called dispensationalism. Perhaps you've heard of dispensationalism. Uh, it can be traced back to, 19th, to the 19th century. Uh, it was taught by figures like John Nelson Darby and C.I. Schofield and Charles Ryrie. It's really a very novel theology, historically speaking. It really only goes back to the 19th century. And it's also uniquely American. It arose here and not anywhere else. Now, some of our missionaries have exported it to other parts of the world, but it's really a uniquely American theology. I have no doubt that all of those men, like Schofield and Ryrie and so forth, all of the men who are sort of the architects of dispensationalism, I have no doubt they were believers. But I also have no doubt that their theology was deeply flawed. Dispensationalism has been incredibly popular 
among American Christians for really the past 120 years at least. What is dispensationalism? Well, in its simplest form, if you really boil it down, it's really about separating Israel from the church. So Israel and the church are completely distinct in the purposes of God. God has two peoples, Old Covenant Israel and the New Covenant Church, and they have nothing to do with each other, basically. So God has two peoples. He's got an earthly people, the Jews, and he's got a spiritual people or a heavenly people, the church. And so among dispensationalists, there's this tendency to take a passage like Genesis 12, where God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And then that text is used to say, well, see, we must bless the modern nation state of Israel. We must bless modern day Jews. Whatever their beliefs are, whatever their worldview is, we've got to bless modern day Israelis because they are the children of Abraham. God has commanded us to bless them. And if we curse them, we will be cursed. Again, this view has been highly influential in American politics for several generations now. Its political, its, you know, its theological manifestation is called dispensationalism. Its political manifestation is sometimes called Zionism, this unconditional support for the nation state of Israel. Now, understand me, in criticizing this, I'm not saying we should not support Israel in the present conflict. I think there are good and proper reasons to support Israel in the present conflict. But if we choose to support Israel in the present conflict as Americans, we should do so for the right reasons and not for the wrong reasons. We should do so based on wisdom. We should do so based on what's in America's best interest. We should do so based on who we believe is just and unjust, who, who's right and who's wrong in the conflict we should not do so on the basis of a misunderstanding or a misapplication of scripture, and I'm afraid sometimes that happens. So here are the kind of questions we really need to wrestle with. How should we view modern-day Israel theologically? Is the formation of an Israeli nation-state, a Jewish nation-state in 1948, is that a fulfillment of prophecy? Does that have theological significance for us, redemptive significance? Another way of getting at this, who are the people of God in the world today? Who are God's chosen people? Where is God's chosen nation to be found? What is the relationship of Old Covenant Israel to the New Covenant Church? Who is the true successor to Old Covenant Israel? Is it the church or is it the modern nation state of Israel? Who are the true children of Abraham? If being a child of Abraham brings blessing, what does it mean? Who are the true children of of Abraham? Well, to answer those questions, let me start with this. It is crucial to see that various titles, names, and descriptions that are given to Israel in the Old Covenant are now applied to the Jew-Gentile church in the New Covenant. So names and titles given to Israel in the Old Covenant are now applied to the church in the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, Israel is called the chosen nation. In the New Testament, the church is called the chosen nation. In the Old Covenant, Israel is called the kingdom of priests. In the New Testament, the church is called the kingdom of priests. Israel is called God's inheritance. Now the church is called God's inheritance. And on and on we could go. You can have a multitude of examples of this where names and titles given to Israel in the Old Covenant are now applied to the church in the New. Perhaps most importantly is this fact. Israel under the Old Covenant is actually called the church. The Greek word, ekklesia, that's the word translated as church, 
uh, for us in English, that Greek word ekklesia, is used for Israel in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And of course the apostles, to some degree, relied upon that Greek translation of the Old Testament. So, for example, in the book of Deuteronomy, Israel, the, the, the people of Israel, are called God's church. Israel was the church under the Old Covenant. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 10, God commanded Moses, gather the ecclesia before me, gather the church before me. That word church is used of the Jewish people in the Old Covenant. And you actually see this picked up in the New Testament scriptures. New Testament writers will describe Old Covenant Israel as God's church. So, for example, in Acts chapter 7, verse 38, Stephen is here giving a long speech recounting the whole history of Israel. And when he's talking about the Exodus, when he's recounting the Exodus, Stephen says, Moses led the church in the wilderness. That is to say, the nation of Israel was God's church. They were God's church in the desert at that point in history, but Israel was God's church. That's the word Stephen Uses And so the whole thrust, really, of Stephen's sermon is to show that now Christians, believers in Jesus as Messiah, they stand in continuity with God's work for Israel in the Old Covenant. Christians have inherited the promises and the story of Old Covenant Israel. So whatever else we might say about the modern nation-state of Israel, we should not view it as standing in continuity with Old Covenant Israel. The, the modern nation-state of Israel is not the continuity of Old Covenant Israel. Old Covenant Israel finds its continuation in the church. And one of the ways we see that is that Israel is already being called the church in the Old Testament scriptures. But that's not all. The church is called the Israel of God in the New Testament scriptures. Where is the Israel of God to be found? Well, that name Israel, that name Israel of God, is applied to the church. So the Old Testament calls Israel the church, and the New Testament calls the church Israel. We read from Galatians chapter 6 this morning. Paul there says that circumcision and uncircumcision count for nothing. That is, circumcision, which under the Old Covenant distinguished Israel as God's priestly people from the Gentiles. Circumcision marked Israel out as God's priestly nation. Paul says now circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. They have no bearing on your spiritual status or your identification as the people of God. Well, then what matters? What does? He says what counts is being a new creation. Of course, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, we, are, we, we become this new creation in Christ Jesus as we're united to him. He makes us this new creation. In Galatians 6, Paul goes on, he says, peace and mercy be upon the Israel of God. The Israel of God here must be the church, which of course is composed of Jews who believe in Jesus and Gentiles who believe in Jesus. What defines the church is believing in Jesus. Paul says, peace and mercy be upon the Israel of God. He's talking here about the church. Because the church, again, is constantly addressed in the New Testament as the recipient of God's peace and mercy. In fact, if by Israel of God in Galatians 6, Paul is singling out Jews, even believing Jews, he's really contradicting himself because the whole purpose of the book of Galatians, the whole reason this letter was written, is to show that Jew and Gentile believers are one people, one family, one church, and that Gentiles don't have to become Jews in order to become part of the people of God. So again, what do we see? Israel is the church of the Old Covenant, and the church is the Israel of the New. Israel is the church of the Old Covenant, and the church is the Israel of the New Covenant. There are other ways we can see this. In Joel chapter 2, 
the prophet says that God will pour out his spirit on Israel. That promise comes to fulfillment in Acts chapter 2 when the spirit is poured out on the church. What was intended for Israel happens to the church. In other words, promises God made to Israel are fulfilled in the church. They find their fulfillment in the church. Again, the church is Israel and Israel is the church. The Israel of God is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can think of it this way if you want to understand the flow from Old Covenant to New Covenant. The New Covenant church is Israel transformed. Israel in New Covenant form. Israel glorified and enlarged. The New Covenant church stands in continuity with Old Covenant Israel. That's why in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter takes a whole catalog of names and titles and descriptions that were used of Israel in the Old Covenant and now applies them to the church. He wants Christians to understand, you are the ones who have inherited this history, this legacy, this scripture, these promises. You are now the people of God. So it's clear that Israel in the Old Covenant and the church in the New Covenant are one. One people, one story stretching across the ages. The church is the new Israel. It's Israel in New Covenant form. I think one of the clearest passages that deals with this is Romans chapter 11. There, Paul uses the analogy of the olive tree to describe the people of God throughout all of history. There's one tree, not two, so there's your counter to dispensationalism that says God has two people. There is one olive tree, not two. It's not as if God chopped down the old covenant tree and planted a new one when the new covenant began. He doesn't plant a new tree. What does he do? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 11, Jews who did not believe the gospel... When Jesus came, they were natural branches on the tree, but they got broken out of the tree. They got pruned from the tree because of their unbelief. Their unbelief, their refusal to embrace Jesus as Messiah made them into covenant breakers. And so while they had grown naturally on the tree, God breaks them out of the tree and they're cast into the fire of judgment. He says further, Gentiles who have believed the gospel are like wild olive branches who got grafted into the tree of Israel, into the tree of the covenant, so they're now part of the family of Abraham. These Gentiles are like wild olive branches being grafted into the tree. So many Jews in the first century were no longer part of Israel, and many Gentiles now have been brought into Israel. That's the situation Paul is describing. What this means is that we, that is, let's say we Gentiles who believe in Jesus as the promised Messiah, we have been grafted into the olive tree, we have been made citizens of the true Israel, we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as our fathers. That history, that story, those promises, those covenants, it's all ours. It's interesting, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul's writing to a predominantly Jewish congregation, a predominantly Jewish, I'm sorry, predominantly Gentile church. So he's writing to the Corinthians, and this is a predominantly Gentile church. And Paul says to these Gentile believers, he says, our fathers went through the Exodus. He says, our fathers crossed through the Red Sea. Our fathers were baptized into Moses and the cloud. He's saying, if you're a believer in Jesus, that old covenant history is now your history. You have Abraham as your father. You have 
Moses is your deliverer. That, that, that's now your history because you believe in Jesus. He is the ultimate and the final Jew, the one in whom all of Israel's promises come to fulfillment and you're united to him. So all of that is yours. You Gentiles are the true Jews because you believed in Jesus. The whole letter of Ephesians really is a good illustration of this as well. Again, Ephesians was written to a church composed mostly of Gentiles who had believed in Jesus. But in chapter 1, Paul calls them saints. He calls them holy ones. Again, that's a word that was used to describe Israelites in the Old Covenant. Now Paul applies it to Christians. He says, you are God's holy ones, you Christians. In chapter 2, he says this, and this is kind of lengthy, but it's really worth reading and considering. In Ephesians 2, Paul says this, at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is the circumcision. So you Gentiles in the flesh, you were despised by the Jews. He says you were at that time separated from Christ. You were at that time alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were outside of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, the covenants that God had made, all anchored to that promise to send his son. You were strangers to those promises. You had no hope and you were without God in the world. That was your condition But he says, now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What does that mean? It means that they were excluded. All those things they were excluded from, the covenants and the Israel of God, they have now been included in. They're no longer aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. They're now citizens of the commonwealth of Israel. He goes on in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, Jesus has made us both, that is Jew and Gentile, one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus on the cross ended the Jew-Gentile division. He broke down that wall of hostility in order that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both, that is Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he ends that chapter by saying we are being joined together, that is Jew and Gentile, growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul says there's one people of God, there's one temple of God, one house for God, there's one Israel of God. And all who believe in Jesus are on the inside. It doesn't matter their ethnicity. And all those who who reject Jesus are on the outside. It doesn't matter their ethnicity. He goes on in chapter 3, he says God's mystery, the mystery of God has now been revealed. And that mystery is that Gentile believers are fellow heirs, members of the same body as believing Jews. See, if we are fellow heirs, that means we have become sons of Abraham. We now inherit God's promises. And then just to illustrate this, in chapter 6, he takes a promise made to Jewish children in the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother that you may have long life in the land the Lord your God is giving to you. And Paul takes that promise attached to the fifth commandment and he transforms it and he applies it to Gentile Christian children living in Ephesus a long way from the land of Palestine, a long way from the promised land. He says they're to honor their father and mother so that they might have long life on the earth. See, the earth, the whole earth, is now our promised land. We are to inherit the whole world in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 4, that Abraham is to inherit the whole world. See, the whole world is now our promised land. Here's another way to think about it. Who are the true sons of Abraham? Well, clearly not ethnic Jews. 
and it's certainly not the modern nation state of Israel. Who are the true sons of Abraham? Listen to how Paul answers that question in Galatians. Galatians 3.7, he says, No, only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. It could not be more clear. Only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Only those who share Abraham's faith are sons of Abraham. It's not sharing Abraham's flesh that makes you a son of Abraham. It's sharing Abraham's faith that makes you a son of Abraham. And of course, to be a son of Abraham is to be a son of God. Remember how Jesus got into a debate with the Pharisees in John chapter 8, and they said, we've got Abraham for our father. Abraham is our father. And Jesus says, no, you don't. Actually, you are sons of Satan. You've been cut off from the family of Abraham because you have rejected me. Abraham looked ahead to my day and rejoiced because you won't rejoice, you reject me. You have been cut off from the family of Abraham. It is the same thing. And so later in Galatians, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's children. Those who are in Christ by faith are the true children of Abraham. Again, there are not two peoples. There's not a separate plan for the church distinct from Israel. There is one people of God composed of Jews and Gentiles who together believe in Jesus. That was God's plan all along. God's plan was to make Jewish believers and Gentile believers one in Christ by faith. And that's why Paul can go on and say later in Galatians chapter 5, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. That means the Jew-Gentile distinction has been erased. Circumcision has no bearing upon your spiritual status now. What counts, Paul says, is faith working through love. It's faith that makes you part of the people of God. It's faith that makes you a child of Abraham. So, ask the question, who are the people of God? God's chosen people are those who love and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Jews can be part of God's people if they repent and believe. Gentiles can be part of God's people if they repent and believe. All who repent and believe become part of the one family of God. All who repent and believe compose the Israel of God. It's interesting how much of the New Testament, especially Paul's letters, is written precisely to make this point to help Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians learn how to live together as one body, as one holy people, as one covenant family of God. He's helping them through his letters learn how to live together as the Israel of God. It's interesting, too, the first big controversy. You know what the first big controversy was in the apostolic church, the, in the New Testament? The first big controversy was whether or not Gentiles had to become Jews first in order to be saved. And in Acts 15, that gets resolved with the conclusion that Gentiles do not have to become Jews in order to be part of the people of God. That Gentiles and Jews become one by putting their faith in Jesus. That's how we become one family the family of God. Further, it's interesting to consider how the New Testament is full of warnings to first century Jews who are rejecting the Messiah God has sent them. They are warned again and again about being cut off. I talked about that breaking out, being broken out of the tree in Romans 11. The New Testament is filled with warnings about that happening. Many of Jesus' parables are about just this. In the parable of the tenants in Matthew chapter 21, 
the, the, the master of the vineyard lends out his vineyard uh, to others who will work it and produce fruit for him. And he wants to check on how they're doing, how they're doing with his vineyard. Are they producing fruit? fitting with the vineyard and so he sends them his servants and what happens those servants get beaten and so he sends them more servants and it's the same result and so finally the master of the vineyard sends his son gee who do you think that's talking about the master of the vineyard sends his son and what do the tenants do they say let's kill the son and seize his inheritance for ourselves that tells you how Jews were thinking when they crucified Jesus so in the parable what happens when the master of the vineyard comes back to visit the tenants? He's going to punish those tenants to the fullest. That's the point of the parable. The parable really is Jesus' way of telling the story of Israel throughout, his, throughout Israel's history. They've been given God's vineyard. They're supposed to bear fruit. God's been sending them his prophets, but what do they do? They reject the prophets. They mistreat the prophets. Finally, he sends them his son, and what do they do? They kill the son, thinking they can seize the inheritance and claim the vineyard for themselves. But what does Jesus do? Jesus says, the kingdom will be taken away from you and given to a people who will bear its fruit. The kingdom will be taken from you. That's God's warning. That's Jesus' warning to unbelieving Jews in the first century, that they will be cut off for good because they have rejected the son that the master sent, that God the Father sent them. And what will God do with the kingdom? What will Jesus do with the kingdom? He will give the kingdom to those who love and trust the Son, those who will bear its fruit. So much in the New Testament, so much in the ministry of Jesus is taken up with just this issue. Matthew chapter 24, another example of this. Jesus predicted the end of the old covenant order within a generation, that is within 40 years. Within 40 years, the old covenant will come to an end. And Jesus says that will be marked by the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And of course, that happened right on cue, right on schedule in 70 AD, 40 years after Jesus made that prediction, that prophecy. And with the destruction of the, uh, 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 of the old covenant temple, the old covenant came to an end. Now, the only temple that matters is the church. The church is the true temple God is building as a house for himself. Whether a temple ever gets rebuilt in Jerusalem or not, that has nothing to do with Jesus or the Christian faith. The temple God is building is his church. But here's what I want you to notice in all of this. The curses that Jesus pronounced on the Jews in the New Testament are clearly directed to Jews of that generation and that generation alone. Just go look up in a concordance how many times Jesus talked about that generation in the Gospels. Again, Matthew 23 is probably the clearest of this where Jesus says all the righteous blood that's been shed down through history will be avenged upon this generation of Jews. This is when it's all going to come crashing down. The special covenant curse Jesus pronounced on them came to pass in 70 AD when the temple and city of Jerusalem were destroyed, and that is it. Yes, it was the Romans who slaughtered the Jews in mass in that war, but Jesus, it's really clear from Matthew 24, Jesus was the one directing that war, using the Romans as his instrument of wrath, just as earlier in Israel's history, God had used the Assyrians and the Babylonians as the instruments of his wrath, so Jesus does the same with the Romans. But now, all of that is over. 
Ethnic Jews are no longer under God's special blessing. That's clear. But they are also under no special curse. And that is why both anti-Semitism and Zionism are wrong. There's no special blessing for ethnic Jews just because they're Jewish. And there's no special curse upon them just because they're Jewish. In that sense, we can say ethnic Jews are no different than any other ethnic group. The modern nation state of Israel is no different than any other modern nation state in that sense. The reestablishment of a, of a Jewish nation in 1948, that may have been a great idea for political reasons. I think you can make that argument. But it is of no prophetic significance. It might be significant in other ways, but it is not significant theologically. It has no redemptive significance. And so what then should we do in light of all of this? Well, we should love Jews, those who are ethnic Jews, religious Jews, who don't know Jesus. We should love them and evangelize them like we would any other people group. We should pray for them and long for their conversion to Christ. But we should also be very clear, Jews who do not worship Jesus do not worship the same God we do. Jews who reject Jesus do not worship the same God that we Christians do. Jews who reject Jesus don't worship the same God we do any more than Muslims worship the same God we do. Jesus made that very, very clear. In fact, Jesus in John chapter 5 said, if you reject the Son as Messiah, you reject the Father who sent him. Jesus said to the Jews of his day, if you reject me, you're rejecting your God. And so when they reject Jesus as Messiah, they are no longer worshipers of the true God. It is that simple. And so Jews and Muslims alike need the gospel. Like all other sinners, they need the gospel. All of this means that the real key to understanding the connection between Old Covenant Israel and the New Covenant Church is Jesus. Jesus is the one who ties Old Covenant and New Covenant together. He's the one who ties together Old Covenant Israel and the New Covenant Church. So you might ask the question, how is it that Gentiles can receive the fulfillment of promises made to Jews so long ago? How is it that Gentiles can be grafted into Israel and receive promises made to Israel? Well, the answer to that question is union with Jesus. Jesus is a Jew. We're united to him. We receive the promises in him. All of scripture is about Jesus. It's all about his people, his body, his bride. And so again, think of Israel and the church as two chapters in the same story. Two phases in history of one people. All scripture revolves around Jesus and his people. Jesus is the center and his church is his prized possession. And so there's only one way of salvation from sin all throughout scripture, all throughout history. It is trusting in Jesus alone. There's only one set of promises in scripture and all of them are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. There's only one people of God all throughout history, the bride of Christ, whom he laid down his life for on the cross. There's only one family of God, the family God promised Abraham, the family that is united to Abraham's seed. And that seed is the Lord Jesus. Again, in Christ Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Oh, sure, we still have our ethnic identities. There are American Christians and Chinese Christians and Palestinian Christians and Jewish Christians and Australian Christians. But the only distinction that really ultimately matters is the distinction between Christian and non-Christian. That's what counts. You're either in the new creation 
or you're not. And the way you get into the new creation is by being united to Jesus through faith. The Jew-Gentile distinction is now irrelevant as far as salvation is concerned. Circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing as far as our status before God is concerned. All that matters, all that matters is being in Christ Jesus by faith. See, it's really, really clear. Jesus is Israel. Jesus himself is the Israel of God. Jesus is the embodiment of Israel, the one who fulfills in himself Israel's mission and Israel's calling. He is the faithful remnant of Israel, whittled down to one. He is the promised priest and king. He is the one to whom all of Israel's promises are given and in whom they are fulfilled. Gentiles then can come to share in Israel's blessing by sharing in Jesus, by being united to Jesus as the true Jew. And Jews who do not trust in Jesus do not share in Israel's blessing because they're separated from Christ Jesus who is the true Israelite. See, Jesus is fully God, that's really clear. He's fully God, but he's also fully man. And he is a Jewish man with Abraham's blood in his veins. He is the ultimate son of Abraham, the seed of the woman who defeats the serpent and who brings blessing to the nations. He is the seed, the one who fulfills the promises in Genesis 3 and Genesis 12 and everywhere else in Scripture. And if we are in him, if we are united to him by faith, all of these things are true for us. Old Covenant saints were saved by trusting in him as the seed God had promised to send. New Covenant saints are saved by trusting in him as the one God has sent. His crucifixion, his resurrection. But either way, Old Covenant or new, salvation is only found in Christ Jesus. And so when we look at this horrific conflict in the Middle East between modern-day Jews and Hamas. This is how you got to think about it. Modern-day Jews and Hamas may be enemies. They may be mortal enemies. They may be at war with each other. But as much as they despise each other, they actually have something deeply important in common. They have both together rejected Jesus. And so even while they're at war with each other, they're really at war with Jesus. They are aligned in that way. See, all alike, Jew and Gentile, Israeli and Arab, all alike, modern-day Israelites and Hamas, all alike have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and can only be justified by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who is put forward as a sacrifice of atonement, as a means of propitiation for us turning aside God's wrath by his death on the cross. Jews and Muslims, Israelis and Hamas, both reject that one sacrifice for sins. Jews say they don't need a sacrifice. They don't think they need blood atonement. Muslims want to turn Jews into the sacrifice. They want to shed the blood of every Jew on the face of the world as a sacrifice. But there's really only one sacrifice. There's only one sacrifice that matters. There's only one sacrifice that saves, and that is the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. It is his blood and his blood alone that saves and that rescues and that redeems. Only in Jesus can the Israel of God 
find peace. But we now have that peace in him. He is the savior of the nations, the, the lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. He is the only hope of all peoples. He is the prince of peace, the only one who can bring peace to the Middle East and anywhere else on the face of the earth. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.